Thank you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast, where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker. I hope you've already felt just a little bit of the glory of God in the songs that we've been singing. And now what I need you to do is roll up your sleeves because we got some work to do today. I was doing some research preparing for this sermon today, and I started looking at news headlines, and I was trying to find like a good story to start this sermon off with of somebody who really understood glory, like really, really good imagery of uh, the glory that the Bible describes for us today. We're going to hear this word glory five times in five verses, and I looked at dozens and dozens of news articles, and all of them were pointing towards sports figures. Like 99% of the headlines that I looked at were talking about some great athlete on the field somewhere. And the 1% that didn't talk about athletes were talking about the entertainment industry some kind of movie star, television personality, some kind of musician. And it occurred to me while I was looking at all these headlines, wow, we've got a problem in our society. We really have a poor understanding of this Bible word glory. If the only way that we know how to associate glory is somebody under the bright lights of a soccer stadium or on the big screen, if that's all we know of glory, we have a really, really small understanding of glory. And today what we're going to do is we're going to hear Jesus and what makes Jesus tick and how he was absolutely passionately consumed for the glory of God. Before we even get into the the text of scripture today, I want to ask you a question. In fact, I'm going to ask it to you more than once, and I want to let it linger there because I want you to really think about the answer for just a second. Think about all that you did last week. Think about where your time went and where all of your energy went, your passion and the money and everything else that you devoted yourself to last week is what you're living for. Here's the question. Worth dying for. Think about it again. All of your time, all of your energy, where your passion went last week, is that thing worth dying for? Because what you're going to hear from the Bible today, I'll just put it for you in one small sentence. The only thing we're dying for is eternal glory. And if what you're living for isn't worth dying for, then why are you living for it in the first place? You see, the Bible is going to give us a glimpse today, just a very small glimpse of God's glory. And what you're going to see from the Bible is how Jesus lived his life totally, passionately, 100% for the Father's glory and ultimately gave his life up so that his father would get glory. And as we start to dive into the text of scripture, before we even get into John chapter 17, because the word glory is gonna come up like a hundred times in this sermon, let me just paint what the Bible means when it uses this word glory. It's talking about the thing that you esteem most in your life. What is 
first place in your life, the thing that you praise above everything else in your life, what gets most of your energy, most of your time, most of your attention, that thing is what you glorify. And Jesus is going to describe why only the Father should get that kind of time, that kind of passion, that kind of energy from you. Only living for his glory is worth dying for. And if it ain't worth dying for, why are you living for it in the first place? So now let's dig in. Now that you've rolled up your sleeves with me a little bit, let's dig into John chapter 17, and we're going to start to read this prayer from the Bible. Actually, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks in John chapter 17, and this is perhaps the second most important prayer you're going to read in the entire Bible. The first, of course, being the Lord's Prayer, the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. But this is referred to by Bible scholars in John chapter 17 as Jesus' prayer for his people— Because Jesus is our great high priest, this passage is sometimes called the high priestly prayer. And most people believe these are the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he was arrested, taken away, condemned to die, and ultimately gave his life up. And listen to how this prayer begins when Jesus starts to describe his father. And he reminds us, that the Father always acts for his own glory. When I was preparing this sentence, I I really wanted to use the word only instead of the word always, but I thought that that might confuse some of you out there theologically. You see, the truth is, the best way to say this, the most accurate way to say this, is that God the Father always and only acts for his glory. Every time he acts, It's always for the same reason. And it's always ultimately for his glory. And if you're standing there scratching your heads for just a second because you're thinking, well, that just doesn't make sense to me. Let me put it to you in these words. God is the absolute greatest answer in all questions. He is perfect. He is pure. He is best. So when God's people are praying to him and they want their Father in heaven, to give them their best. If he were to give them the best, he would have to give him himself. And every time God acts, he always acts in a pure and a perfect and the best possible way. So he's always acting for himself and for his glory. Because if he were to act for any other reason and in any other manner, it would always be less than the best. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus is going to say about the Father today. That he always, and he actually only, acts for his glory. Listen to Jesus as he bows his head and starts to pray to his Father. John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven. And by the way, it may be good for you to keep your eyes open sometimes when you're praying and look up to heaven. He looked up to heaven and he said, Father... The hour has come. Say hour out loud. That's an important word. We're going to talk about that in just a second. The hour has come. And then here's Jesus' big request. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. 
Jesus is asking a bold request of the Father right out of the gate, John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer. And his bold request is, God, I'm going to ask you, Father, to make a big deal out of your son because I'm about to make a big deal out of you. And all of this hangs on the word glory. Now, when we talk about glory, when we use the word glory, I don't think we have a grasp of it in our society today. We associate it with sports figures and entertainment stars. That's the best that we can come up with for glory. But in Jesus's day, people understood this word glory. It's the sum total of all of God's attributes. It's who God is. If you were to summarize it all together, the best way to describe it is his glory. Let me put it to you this way. Parents, if you've ever been driving with young children in the back seat and they're just kind of staring out the window, they're inevitably going to ask you this question, and it's a really hard question to answer. They're going to say, hey, why is the sky blue? And you're going to sit there and fumble through about 50 words trying to explain to a three-year-old why the sky is blue. And if you're not careful, you're going to try to explain what it is that makes the sky blue. But the truth is, there is really nothing that makes the sky blue. The sky is inherently, naturally blue. That's why the sky is blue. Let me use this analogy for you. Why is water wet? Well, if it wasn't wet, it wouldn't be water anymore. I can't ex exactly explain to you why water is wet, but it has to be wet in order for it to be water. Y'all follow me? Why is God glorious? It's part of who he is. And you cannot separate God and glory. These two things are inherently true at the same time. So God is always going to be glorious, and in order for him to be God, he has to be glorious, and God and glory are always the same, just like the sky is always blue and water is always wet. And Jesus is saying, Father, I'm about to take the last step. Here it is. The hour has come. If you are in the habit of writing in your Bible, you really should circle the word hour. I mean, literally, put a circle around it, because this is the hour that all of history has been pointing towards. Not just while Jesus was on earth. This is the hour that the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world was heading towards. This train has been heading down the tracks since before God created the heavens and the earth. He knew that his son would ultimately have to become the sacrifice that would rescue us from our sins. And who the son sets free really is free indeed. And now the hour is here, God. And what's in front of me is a really big, really painful uh, event. And Father, I'm going to do this so that you will get the glory. And by the way, the tomb, the empty tomb on Sunday morning is the way that the Father gives the Son glory. The cross on Friday is the way the Son gives the Father glory. And the Father turns right around and gives the Son glory with the tomb on Sunday morning. This is the only reason why you and I can say, I am chosen and not forsaken because the Son has set me free. And I struggle with this very language that Jesus is using today. Because when I look at all of human relationships, love almost always looks transactional to me. Even the greatest 
acts of sacrifice. Even warriors who willingly give their life up on the battlefield for their buddies, knowing that they're not going to make it out alive, but maybe my buddy will have a chance at survival. Even those acts have a degree of transactional nature to them. What Jesus is asking for here is not transactional. He's not saying, Father, if I do this for you, then I need you to do this for me. That's transactional. It's actually mutual. Father, I want you to get the glory, and as I get the glory, I will turn right around and give every bit of it to you, and as you get the glory, I'm asking you to turn around and point the glory to me, and this is mutual glory. This is mutual love. It's actually a concept that I'm not sure I completely understand. It's God's perfect love, his unconditional love which says, listen to me, Christian, no matter how bad you messed up last week, there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. And some of you need to know that because you really, really messed up last week. But some of you in this room need to know, no matter how hard you tried to be a good girl or a good boy last week, you can't make him love you more. There's nothing you can do that would earn more love. There's nothing you can do that make him love you less, that his love is pure, his love is perfect, and he showers his love on you just because you are the object of his affection. And by loving you, it is for your good, and it's always, and I want to add only, for the Father's glory at the same time that he's doing it for your good. And I need you to keep that in mind. The great Puritan pastor, Andrew Murray, said, when you pray, I want you to remember the way the son prayed to the father, and then I want you to remember that you are a child of God. And you start praying to the Father just like the Son prayed to the Father. And you start praying for God's glory to be done. And then you can end that prayer with the bold expectation that God is going to do something incredible. Because you didn't ask it for yourself in the first place. You were exclusively asking it for his glory. The Father always acts for his glory. And he only gives only God has eternal glory. Listen, there's stuff that you can do that will matter years after you're gone. If you really, really make a dent on history, maybe people are still talking about you 100 or 150 years later. But 10,000 years from now, nothing that any of us did in this room will matter one hill of beans except for what you did for God's glory. And that keeps echoing into heaven 10,000 years after 10,000 years because God alone is eternal. God's glory is eternal. What you and I do here on earth, it really does matter. It really does echo into eternity. That's why as a church, we're so passionate about pushing back darkness because we just want to see God glorified in every aspect of our society. And that's what the son is asking the father next. I realize, if you're looking at your Bible right now, that I deliberately, abruptly just stopped right in the middle of verse 2. And now I'm going to pick up right in the middle of verse 2, right where I left off on purpose. Because listen to Jesus' language next in this sandwich of God's glory at the beginning of these verses and God's glory in the end of these verses. And in the middle is you. John chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. 
since you, Father, gave him, Jesus, authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Say the word no out loud. That they may know you, the only true God, the one you have, and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to just look at these verses on the screens, Jesus is going to describe the Father for us in two descriptions. First, there's only one God. Jesus makes it very clear, but oh, by the way, the Son is also the God and is also God, and he makes this statement in these verses. There's only one God, there's only one true God, there's only one authentic God, meaning all other little g, lesser gods are not really gods at all. They're just things competing for God's glory in your life. And if something else is taking some of God's glory away in your life, that thing has started to become a God. And Jesus is saying, no, Father, you are the only God. And only you are the true and authentic God, which means only you should be getting the glory in my life and your glory. It goes on and on and on and on for eternity. And oftentimes we have things in our life that starts to compete for our glory or for God's glory. It starts to steal our attention away from us, and it starts to take some of God's glory from God, and it starts to take it um, and take first place in our life. Jesus makes a couple of statements here, and I don't want us to read more into the Bible than what he says. I don't want us to read less into the Bible than what he says. Jesus is unashamedly talking about God's election here. God, you have given people to your son, and all those that you have given belong to him. But at the same time, Jesus makes it abundantly clear. If you were to stay with me next week, you will see this is unmistakable. God's election and our responsibility to get out there and to share that story with everybody on the planet, meaning our, our mission of evangelism. And he says it this way. The people that really have eternal life, they're the ones that know you, God. Now, that's a problem our language, the English language, because we tend to use the word no like you just aced a test. You studied hard, you, you read the material, you heard the lectures, and you repeated back on the test what you heard in the classroom and what you read in the workbooks. And we would say, well, that means that you know the material. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. The problem is many people who go to church approach the Bible like it's a textbook. As long as I understand the content and as long as I can repeat the content back, that means that I know the content, right? Wrong. Knowing in Jesus' statement here is the intimate personal knowledge of the content. It's the difference between saying, I read about a president of the United States in the history book, or I know that president because he comes over to my house, or I get invited to his house. He has a big white house in Washington, D.C., and I hang out with him. That's the difference between knowing it and intellectually understanding it. And in fact, I need you to hear this because there are people 
Unfortunately, there are even pastors who will stand up on a Sunday and they just want you to believe a set of facts. And they think that by believing that Jesus really is the Son of God, he really did go to the cross, he really did raise again, and he really does love you just by understanding those facts, you're on your way to heaven. But the truth is, those are just facts. And according to James chapter 1, the demons believe those facts. The difference between us and the demons is we know it because we've experienced it. And it has made such an impact on us that it has impacted and affected the way that I live my life. Tomorrow, my life is different because of the facts that I've heard. And I go out and I live differently because of those facts. And Jesus is saying, these are the ones that really know me. And those are the ones that have eternal life. Not the people that just heard some facts and, and understand that those facts are accurate. I'm talking about the people that have met me and we have a relationship with each other. And Jesus is using his relationship with the Father as an analogy. He's saying, God, just like I know you and you know me, those that know me, they also know you. And I know you intimately and completely. You know me intimately and completely. And Jesus uh, and Jesus knows you, and as a result, you know the Father intimately and completely. So when you act, when you trust him this week, when you make the bold, courageous decision not to live based on what you see only, but believing that there's more to life than just what you see, you start to live for the Father's glory. And it's that kind of lifestyle that echoes into eternity 10,000 years from now. Everything else that you and I do, it'll be wiped off the history books in a few months or a few years or at best a few decades after you're gone. But what you do for the eternal king, that reverberates, that bounces off of the walls of heaven for centuries and thousands of years after your life here on earth ends. Which brings me to the final part of Jesus's prayer for God's glory. And he's telling us that God's glory is priceless. Anybody read the news article about that lottery ticket that just sold in Illinois for more than $1 billion? Anybody read that article this weekend? Somebody, one person bought a ticket and that ticket is now worth more than a billion dollars. When I put the word priceless on the screens, I need you to understand more valuable than that lottery ticket, more valuable than all of the human wealth put together and added up over the course of all of history. It is more valuable than that. I'll prove it to you in just a second. Listen to how Jesus goes back to the Father's glory here in verse 4. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And this word completing means that it is totally, perfectly fulfilled. What you sent me here on earth to do, God, I've knocked it out of the park and I haven't missed the detail. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. Do you see this last phrase on the screen, before the world existed? Do you know what Jesus is doing here? Actually, do you know what John, the guy who wrote this book, is doing? He's going back to the very beginning. 
I don't mean Genesis 1-1 beginning. Because in Genesis 1-1, you read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm referring to John 1-1 beginning. Because on the timeline, John 1-1 takes place before Genesis 1-1. John, at the very beginning of this book, tells us, in the beginning was the Word. And by the way, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just so you don't get confused about where this took place in the grand timeline, John tells us next that before anything was created, the Word existed, and it was the Word that created everything that was created. And if you were to ask the question like, what was Jesus doing before heaven and earth began? What was God doing before Genesis, ch Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? Well, that question's easy. It's actually answered right here for you in John chapter 17. God the Father was hanging out with his son. And the son was going to dad's house and spending all, all kinds of time with dad because that's what they were doing, enjoying one another's presence before God created everything. And then God made this paradise and he put two people in paradise and he gave them one rule and they broke it. From that moment forward, the tumblers started falling that would eventually lead to Jesus having to leave heaven and come to earth. And what Jesus is saying here is, when I left heaven, I left all of that glory. I put it all off to the side, and God placed me in the womb of a virgin, and I lived this physical, tangible life here on earth so that I could become the perfect representation of what it looks like to follow after God, what it looks like to live a life glorifying the Father. And that ultimately cost me my life. That's the hour that he was talking about a few minutes ago. And he's saying, the Father's, Father, the hour's coming where I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to glorify you. And I'm asking you to glorify me with that tomb on Easter Sunday morning when you return me back to the glory that I set off to the side and put all away so that I could walk here on planet earth as a temporary mortal man um, living here on earth before I accomplished your mission, before I went back to the cross. I've done everything you've asked me to do, God. And now my last official act will be the act that brings you the most glory. And the greatest tragedy in human history God is big enough to turn around and turn it into the most glorious moment in all of history. It is the moment where on Good Friday, the Son of God died. It is the Good Friday moment where God loved you and me enough to rescue you from your sin instead of leaving you stranded and helpless and unable to earn your way to heaven and that's what the father or that's what the son is about to do and he's reminding the father I'm going to the cross and I'm doing this for you and father I'm asking you to do this for me and God always and I just want to add only acts for his glory and now I just want to see if you've been paying attention for a second before we get into some next steps I want to go back and I want to do a test with you and if you're 
driving and listening to this right now. I'm going to ask you to answer these questions out loud. It's a fill-in-the-blank question, and I want you to answer it out loud, which means if your windows are down and you're stuck in traffic, the people next to you are going to think you're crazy, but just do this, humor me anyway. If you're in this room, I want you to answer these series of questions out loud, and I'm just going to make it super easy for you. The answer to every question is the same. Here's question number one. Why did God create the heaven and the earth in the first place? Answer it out loud. For his glory. You got that question right. You should get all the rest of them right. This is going to be easy for you, right? Why did God create Adam and Eve and put them in paradise? Okay, that one should be easy. So the next one would be even easier. Why did he create you? He created you and placed you on planet earth for his glory. And now the next question. Why did God send his son Jesus to earth? Are you guys still with me? Because it's the exact same answer. Let me ask it one more time. Maybe you can get it right this time. Why did God send Jesus to earth? For his glory. Thank you. And why did Jesus go to the cross and willingly give up his life? For his father's glory. For God's glory. And now the next question. What would be worthy of trading everything else that this world has to offer and living your life giving your time, giving your energy, giving your passion, giving what's first place in your life to, what could possibly be worthy of that? For his glory and only for his glory are you and I to live our lives and to get up tomorrow morning and to face whatever life throws at you and before you even get out of bed and your feet hit the floor for you to say, Father, I don't know what today's coming, but I do know this. I'm going to give it all for your glory. And I need you to meet me in the middle of my challenges and to give me the energy and the focus that I need to face whatever comes around the corner because I don't know what's coming, but I'm going to give it all for your glory. And now you may be ready to put what you've heard from the Bible into practice. We call these taking next steps around here. What we're simply saying is we don't want the Bible to go in one ear and come out the other and you completely forget about it. I want you to put what Jesus said in John chapter 17 into practice this week. And maybe somebody's reading this or you're hearing this for the first time and you're realizing, you know what? I have been living my life for my own glory. I have been the only thought. I have been what's most important in my life. I have got up every day and I've been focused on me and only on me. Did you know that if that's you right now, you have been breaking the first commandment. You have placed another God in front of the one and the only God. And that other God is you. And maybe what you need to do today is exchange your glory for his glory. Maybe what you need to do is physically, if not at least spiritually, bow your knees and say, God, forgive me. I've created a, I've made a huge sin and I have placed myself in front of you and I've been living for my glory, not your glory. And I need you to change my heart because I know I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to do the exact same thing if you don't step in and you don't change my heart. So God, really what I'm asking you is would you give me eternal life like Jesus was talking about today? We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes. Have a great week.